Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Someone said recently that Donald Trump may not be our worst president, that the jury is still out with respect to that. But for sure, he's the worst person ever to be president. The point is that character, personal legacy, personal relationships, and upbringing do matter. That we place our trust as a people and as a nation in the sum total of the life of the people we elect to lead us. The personal traits and politics are often separate but equal. Over 240 years, we've done a pretty good job of making those choices. One such example was Ronald Reagan. Whether we agree with him politically or not, he brought with him personal qualities that we often long for today. Personal qualities that in so many ways shaped him, his politics, his legacy, and the country. And bringing this into closer perspective in these troubled times is my guest, Bob Spitz. Bob Spitz is a journalist and biographer. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and Esquire. He had a long career in the music business, representing some of the biggest names in the industry. He's the author of seven previous books, and it is my pleasure to welcome Bob Spitz back to this program to talk about his new work, Reagan, An American Journey. Bob Spitz, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, nice to speak with you again. It's great to have you here. Tell us why Reagan. There have certainly been a lot written about Ronald Reagan over the years. What was it that that compelled you to do this? Well, you know, after writing about the Beatles and about Julia Child, (laughs) I was looking for another subject. And, you know, my wife said to me, there are two elements in in all of your books that you need to concentrate on when deciding who you're going to write about. And that is, number one, they were beloved. And number two, they changed the culture. And when I sat down and made up and, and went through lists of people from, you know, the Kennedy Center honorees or the Medal of Honor winners, I, uh, I realized that people might fill one of those qualities, but not both. And ultimately, she said to me, what about Ronald Reagan? And I went, absolutely not. You know, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I've never voted for a Republican in my life, and uh, it just seemed preposterous to me. Uh, But when I did a little investigation, I saw that over 600 books had been written about Ronald Reagan, just like when I wrote about the Beatles. There had been over 800 books written about them, and they were either hagiography or very slim looks at a very slim part of that person's life or partisan takes. And I realized that one thing that uh, I had to do was to write a definitive work about this person, and maybe I'd learn why he was considered so beloved by so many people in the country, maybe not me and, and you know, my fellow Democrats, but by a, a great amount of Americans. And so I took it as a challenge, and I thought I'm going to keep an open mind. I will not write a partisan take. Uh, I'm going to really examine this man's life from the very beginning to the very end and try to draw a, a real objective picture of him. Of course, part of the challenge of that is the Ronald Reagan that left office in 1988, the Ronald Reagan that that we knew then, and the way in which you say he's more beloved now, there's really been a change of perception over time, as there is with, with any leader. Talk a little bit about that aspect of it and really adjusting for that, making the necessary calculations in writing about it. Yeah, it it was actually one of the most difficult things to do because over a period of time, 
people realize that Reagan's, uh, Reagan's form of conservatism, Reagan's form of leadership was much more civil than the way the right was behaving today. And so they, they look at Reagan's administration with perhaps a nostalgic eye for when things were a little more civil in Washington. Um, perhaps that obscures some of the policies that uh, he was chiefly responsible for and, and obfuscates some of the, um, the failures of his administration. But, you know, as you mentioned, um, the glow, I mean, even people like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton cite Reagan as, you know, this beacon of, of, of success and hope in the country. They raise his name all the time. And so, uh, yeah, over time, I think uh, the public's perception has, has indeed changed. It's also a story about personality over politics in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, sure. it's, it's what I said in the introduction, even with respect to what we're dealing with now, that, that in many ways the personality and the reality of that is more problematic than the policy. As much as you may not like the policy, that, that's policy that might have been put in place by any number of people. That personality over politics really does matter. Well, Reagan, of course, you know, he, were, he was trained as an actor, and so he learned how to communicate with people. And, and that personality came through. You know, when he went on TV, it said it all. He was charming. He was, you know, charismatic. He knew how to use soaring language to speak to people. I mean, you know, who can forget the night that he addressed the nation after the space shuttle Challenger exploded? Even if you were a Democrat, you know, you were you were swept up uh, in, in that whole speech of his. And, and so, you know, Reagan, for the first time in in, uh, in American president, presidential politics, learns how to use personality to uh, to put himself across. Certainly his predecessors didn't have it. Nixon didn't have it. Uh, Jerry Ford didn't have it. Dwight Eisenhower didn't have it. Kennedy had it. And and I think Reagan studied a bit of of Kennedy and and learned how uh, and learned how he could use that kind of charm and that kind of personality to get his policies across. How much of it though was external? How much of it was what you know Fitzgerald talked about vis-a-vis Gadsby that personality was an unbroken series of successful gestures, and how much of it was Reagan really reflecting who he was? Well, you know, I, I think it did reflect who he was. Look, I mean, um, you know, he had several core principles that he held dear. And those were principles that many of them were not part of our, our uh, governmental makeup. He brought religion into politics. He brought abortion into politics. Um, so, you know, in that respect, yes, you're absolutely right. But, um, uh, I, I think that he had the right combination of personality and, and politics that was able to see him through eight years as a president and to come out the other end with, uh, with such a glowing legacy. It's also difficult to, to really understand Reagan, the president, without understanding Reagan when he was governor of California. 
That's right, without a doubt. Look, I, I found some really interesting things about Reagan uh, by talking to all of his colleagues. And, and one of the things that amazed me most was that Reagan signed the first, one of the first therapeutic abortion bills in the country. This was six years before Roe v. Wade. I mean, what was I to make of that? So I called the late Tony Bielenson, who was a California assemblyman, uh, who sponsored that bill, and he said, no doubt about it, Reagan was opposed to abortion. But he said he was willing to look at some of the studies of the assembly talking to their constituents and was willing to consider what they found out. And what they found out was that 65 to 75% of the people in California were in favor of that abortion bill, even though he strongly opposed abortion. And so Reagan decided, look, I'm the president, I'm the uh, governor of all the people, not just some of the people of California. They want that bill signed. I'm going to sign that bill. And I found that stunning to, to understand. I mean, think about that. Governor of all the people. You know, there are, in every state, in every city, in every room, there are people with different opinions about things. But Reagan was willing to compromise and willing to reach across the aisle. And I think that was one of the keys of his success that began at governor. And, and he certainly carried that through uh, when he was president of the United States. How much of that was the fact, and you touched on this a moment ago, that, that Reagan was not an ideologue, that he had four or five key things that he firmly believed in, and that outside of those things, that he was more open and was more flexible. Well, that's true. And, and so much, uh, so little of an ideologue that when he was opposed to abortion, even though he was opposed to it as president, he never made an appearance with the anti with the uh, pro-abortion, excuse me, the anti-abortion crowd. He just felt that he owed it to the people who were on the other side of that issue to, to not really ram it down their throats. No, look, I mean, you know, he, um, he chose the first woman on the Supreme Court and he fought like cats and dogs with Tip O'Neill over the major issues of the day. Tip O'Neill was the, you know, Democratic Speaker of the House. But at the end of the day, Reagan was willing to listen and to compromise. And, and he and O'Neill often got together in his office after six o'clock, dipped into the presidential liquor cabinet, and, and really talked as, as two friends to see how they could get things done in Washington, how they could get things accomplished. And I, I think, you know, if, you, if you're anywhere near a newspaper these days, you realize that those days are gone. Why is it often talked about that Reagan was confusing or complex or hard to understand? Is, is there, did you find truth to that, or was that kind of a mythology that grew out of, you know, the Edmund Morris book? Oh, yeah, I think absolutely the opposite. I think Reagan was absolutely, he reduced everything to, uh, to, to easy to understand sentences so that he could speak to the general American public. You know, Reagan was a pretty simple guy himself. He was not a complex thinker. Um, he wasn't a deep thinker, but his thinking was deeply felt. 
And, and so I, I think he knew how to uh, to reduce things to a very simple to very simple uh, ways. And and part of that is reflected in the way he read policy himself. He he didn't want to see the big position papers and the policy wonk books. He told his staff that he wanted a paper saying a what the issue is what are both sides of this issue and to give him maybe one or two examples of things they thought he should look into but he put it all on one page that that's the way he wanted to see it and the way he wanted to think about initiatives uh and he made his decision based on just you know that small amount of material and talking to talking to the experts that he hired and so i felt that he was unique in that way unique how so Unique in that he was humble enough to know that he wasn't the smartest man Mm -hmm. in every room, but that he would listen to advice. Uh, You know, I I think once you've become the president of the United States, you somehow lose perspective on who you really are. But Reagan didn't. I mean, he he knew that uh, he didn't grasp the big issues, and he was willing to, to rely on on experts and he hired some very very good people and and he was humble enough to listen to them what was the hardest thing for you to come to understand about reagan uh, I think why he uh, allowed himself to be pulled into the iran contra affair i mean it it ultimately uh, torpedoed his second term and uh, you know it was a huge huge mistake i couldn't understand why he did it you know it was uh it it took you know i i was lucky in that i had almost 60 to 70 hours of one-on-one with bud mcfarlane and then another 40 hours with john poindexter both of whom were his uh national security advisors and they really took me behind the scenes of covert operations and told me how you know in a way they kind of roped ronald reagan into trading uh arms for hostages until he was too embroiled in the uh in the Iran-Contra crisis to really get himself out of it. Um, fascinating story, and, and I tried to recreate it in the book as if you're actually there, as if it were happening right now. One of the things that it's kind of conventional wisdom with respect to Reagan is that unlike a lot of other presidents, that there really was a huge difference in the first term versus the second term with Reagan. Talk about that. Well, you know, early in the first term, uh, Ronald Reagan survived a near assassination attempt. And while he was in the hospital, I think he, um, he, he, he came face to face with a sense of his own mortality. And from that moment on, I, I think he set his sights onto somehow, instead of calling the Soviet Union the evil empire or saber rattling, I, I think he decided that he had to find a way to make peace with the Soviet Union or to at least bring them to a table where they could talk and defuse the nuclear threat. And, and, and right from that hospital bed, he writes a handwritten letter 
to uh, to Brezhnev, who is the current Soviet premier, that Brezhnev, of course, dismisses as total uh, lunacy, saying if we could just sit down together and talk man to man, perhaps we could come to some understanding of each other and, and make the world a safer place. Uh, Brezhnev rejected it. Andropov rejected it. Chernenko rejected it. But then, you know, he encounters Mikhail Gorbachev and things begin to change. Mm -hmm. Had Brezhnev, it's, it's interesting to speculate, it's one of those fun things, had Brezhnev been willing to talk to him early on, you wonder how that would have played at that time in U.S. domestic politics. I suspect yeah, not I very think it well. Would, it, would have, it would have thrown a curveball into our politics. Um, uh, there, our, our military industrial co complex was in a bad state of disrepair when Ronald Reagan took over. And so, of course, he dipped into the Treasury and, uh, and, and added to the deficit by expanding our military and, uh, and our armed forces and building up our weapons system again. Um, had Brezhnev sat down and talked to him, I think perhaps we, we, we could have saved a, a couple bucks. But... Um, Reagan was determined to, to, to build that up again and to, to put our country in a position of, of greater strength. Brezhnev was never going to come to the table. He was a, uh, he was a, a, a real hard right ideologue, a Soviet ideologue, and was never going to uh, come to the table. Neither was Andropov or Chernenko. But, but, Brez, but uh, Gorbachev was a different kind of man. The other side of that, the corollary of that, is the degree to which the military buildup that Reagan engaged in caused the Soviet Union to engage in a corresponding buildup and cost them money that they could ill afford. Yes, they were almost broke. Uh, uh, we had money, <laughs> uh, so we could afford to, to have that buildup. But we figured as, if we could continue that arms race with them at, at a certain point, then uh, they weren't going to be able to afford it anymore. And of course, he also came up with this idea of SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which Teddy Kennedy labeled as, as Star Wars. And that was to build this so-called bubble over the United States that would uh, keep missiles out. And for us to have the ability to shoot any oncoming missiles uh, out of the heavens, but it was never going to work, and and that was another ruse. The thing was, uh, it was meant to be almost like a sting that let the Russians believe we were near uh, putting that into capability, and uh, they would uh, they would want to come to the table. One of the things you talk about, and certainly a lot's been written about the influence of Nancy Reagan over the years, yeah. but but you really uh, sort of add to that and, and really it's it's influence on steroids as you describe it yeah oh without a doubt you know when i wrote the book about the beatles i realized that i i realized at the beginning that i had a villain in the book and it was yoko ono and i was completely wrong about that but when i started to write about ronald reagan i thought to myself oh you know i have a villain again i've got the yoko ono character and it's nancy reagan and i was completely wrong again uh, you know, she had a terrible relationship with the press. She was aloof, and they castigated her for being aloof. But she was the real backbone of the Reagan administration. She gave her husband enormous guidance. She knew who the right people were in the administration and the wrong people were. And when she encountered wrong people, 
she got rid of them. She was she was a tough a tough administrator, an eminence grease for sure. But we owe Nancy Reagan a, a great debt, and that is because she had one goal in mind for her husband, and that was his legacy. She wanted him to be known after he left office and remembered for as a man of peace. And so it was Nancy who, from the very moment they set foot in Washington, urged him over and over again, make peace with the Soviet Union, denuclearize, help denuclearize the world, the threat of mutually assured destruction. And, uh, and when they found a, an, an, able, uh, an able speaker in, in Mikhail Gorbachev, someone who was willing to listen, Nancy helped stage manage those summit meetings, first in, uh, in uh, Geneva and later in Reykjavik. And, and she, uh, she really had her hand in, in, in the pie all the way. And I, I think I, I really uh, got to see a different side of her and got to present a different side of her uh, in this book. How did she perceive, though, the fact that for a big part of the Reagan administration, you know, the Soviet Union as the evil empire, as Tony Dolan wrote, the Soviet Union as evil empire really was the way it was perceived? Oh, oh, without a doubt. It was definitely perceived that way. But, you know, she had the same kind of Pollyanna outlook that that really shaped Ronald Reagan's presidency. And that was to always look on the bright side of things. And and she just felt that there was a glimmer of hope in making peace with these people. And one day, uh, I guess it was toward the end of the, actually the beginning of the uh, second term, Margaret Thatcher came to spend a weekend in uh, at Camp David. And she said, you know, I've met this man, Gorbachev. We can, we can make peace with him. We can do business with him. Uh, and from that moment on, Nancy Reagan really pushed her husband to, uh, even though it was the evil empire, she sensed that there was a real opening and that they could drive a truck through that opening. Was Nancy Reagan's influence as great when he was governor? No, not at all. You know, she had two young children uh, to take care of, and, and she was, you know, much more inclined to to spend time with her kids. She did not want to go to Sacramento. That was not a place she wanted to be. And so she always felt a little, you know, abandoned there. Um, he also had a much, much stronger support staff uh, at, in the Capitol in Sacramento. And so uh, she, 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 was little, she was on the outside of that circle. How did she view the circle that was around Reagan for so many years? What was his sort of kitchen cabinet that, that really started when he was in Sacramento and carried through to Washington? Well, you know, there were a lot of wealthy California businessmen. Nancy loved wealthy California people. You know, she, she hobnobbed. Her best friend was Betsy Bloomingdale um, at the Annenbergs, uh, people in the oil business, um, people who owned broadcasting companies, Joe Coors. These were all people who Nancy socialized with. And, and so these were the men who ultimately backed Ronald Reagan. Um, she was very comfortable with those people. It was, it was the people who surrounded him in the Oval Office that she was more circumspect about. You know, Jim Baker, she, she really liked. Uh, Ed Meese, who was Reagan's uh, conservative uh, policymaker, she thought that he was way too conservative and pushed her husband too far to the right. 
And and the third person who was close to him was Michael Deaver. And Michael Deaver was Nancy's conduit right into the Oval Office. He carried information in and carried information back. So she always had a pulse on what was going on there. How aware was was Reagan of, of the influence that she exerted and to what extent was it overt or covert in terms of what she was able to accomplish? Oh, I, I think it was overt, uh, you know, and I think he welcomed it. You know, she, uh, they were a team. They were a very, very uh, strong team. It was only, <clears throat> excuse me, when he, um, w- when she decided that Don Regan had to go as Reagan's second chief of staff, that um, it started to cause some friction in the house. He he liked Don Regan. Nancy despised him, and she made up her mind he was going to go. And once Reagan, she made up her mind that Don Regan was going to go. There was there was no turning back. And, and at one point, he really screamed at her, Nancy, God damn it, get off my back! Uh, the only time anybody ever heard him talk like that to his wife. Um, but she, she was strong. They, it was, it was overt and he relied on her. I, I think he welcomed her input. And, uh, as I said before, they were, they were a real team. What did you find to be the most difficult part of the presidency for Reagan to come to grips with? Oh, I, I definitely think it was Iran Contra. You know, he, um, in a way he had been duped into it. Um, it was presented to him as he was coming out of anesthesia after having a polyp removed and he was still a little groggy. He heard that, uh, if we did something with Iran, something in, that had to do with missiles in exchange, we could get our hostages back who were being kept in Lebanon. There were seven Americans who were being held by Hezbollah in various places. Now, these hostage families had met with Reagan against his staff's wishes because they played on his heartstrings, and they knew that when you played on Reagan's heartstrings, that was, uh, that was the ultimate. Uh, he didn't hear anything else, and he wanted to bring those hostages home. So he didn't really hear the part about missiles. He heard, hey, we can get those hostages home for Christmas. Well, it was, it was a rat's nest, of course, of, of exchange of... of arms for hostages and Schultz and Weinberger who never agreed on anything agreed he shouldn't go near it but he did he was determined to and I think that was the one thing that really um, was the downfall of, of his second term was he concerned did he think much about his legacy not really no he left that up to his wife um, I, I think he, you know, he was kind of a jovial guy. He was just, he was delighted to be where he was, just as he was delighted to be where he was as governor, as GE spokesperson, and as a Hollywood announcer, and as a, a broadcaster in the Midwest. So, you know, he, Reagan kind of went from one day to the other. Uh, I think he thought the legacy could take care of itself and, and never, really, uh, never really had that at the forefront of his mind. Was he, and this is, you know, debated, was he that innocent? Was he that aw shucks about all these things that happened to him? Oh, boy, that's a tough one to uh, to, to say, Jeff. Um, I, I think a lot of that aw shucks was, was, um, was sincere. But he, you know, he had his strong viewpoints and his ideals and his principles that he clung to. 
even when people disagreed with him and he was not going to be veered off that path. And, and when he got good and angry about a particular thing, he, he stuck to his guns. Um, so, you know, some of the aw shucks thing was, was honest, but I, I think he also used that to, uh, to play to the camera and thus play to the nation so that he could win people to his side. I mean, the one thing that, that he was so effective at doing, I mean, and this relates to this Oshuk thing, is, is sort of masking ambition. I mean, to rise to the levels that he did without ambition is hard to believe, but he did such a great job of masking that. Well, you know, he, he was ambitious in the way so many of us are, that we rely on that ambition to take us further up the food chain and to get where our goals have uh, have been set but he never he never rode over people's backs you know he 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 never there were no there were no bodies in, in the wake of his uh, rise to power and popularity um uh, so uh, so i think the ambition was was fairly normal. Uh, uh, you know, he reached for the stars, uh, which is one of the things that I found so amazing about Reagan. Very similar to the research that I did with the Beatles. You know, they were they were these impoverished kids from Liverpool who told family their families they wanted to be rock and roll stars. People thought they were crazy, but they clung to their dreams and they and they got there. And I, I felt that Reagan was that same type of character. He had a dream. He felt that he could uh, go places, and and he set his sights high and he went toward that star. And finally, Bob, what was the one thing that that changed for you in terms of your perception of Reagan that was different when you started this project and 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 really changed as you finished it? You know, I, I thought Reagan was kind of a hardliner. Uh, he uh, he wasn't. Um, I realized that he didn't have a hostile bone in his body, that he really uh, put at the top of his list every day the welfare of the American people, that he believed in the American people and their spirit. And And when I heard his last political speech, it was the last speech that he gave as president, about that shining city on the hill, he said that if that that city had to have walls, then the walls had to have doors so that anybody who wanted to come here and live in harmony and peace should be willing to walk through those doors. And I think that was Ronald Reagan's, Reagan's America. It was welcoming and inclusive, and that changed my mind about him completely. Bob Spitz, the book is Reagan, An American Journey. Bob, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, a pleasure speaking to you again. Thank you.